Today is Epiphany. It is the day that we celebrate the wise magi. Epiphany means to bring light, to cause to appear. It means to show or to make manifest. It means to perceive the essential nature or meaning of something or to have an intuitive grasp of reality, usually through something quite simple and striking. A child laying in a manger is certainly quite simple and striking. And whether we are talking about this yonder star that brought the Magi to Jesus, or if we are talking about Christ as the light made manifest, this is a day to see and to know mystery brought to light. But just on the far edge of these wise men's gift-giving visit to Bethlehem, something much less miraculous and much more criminally conventional occurs. King Herod, the one who sent the Magi to Jesus in the first place, makes a demand that is quite unforgettable. So listen now to the unsavory end of the Magi's visit to Bethlehem from the Gospel of Matthew. Listen for God's presence in all that is unbearable. And astonishing. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the wise men left for their own country by another road. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went back to the land of Israel. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. After being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. May God bless the reading and the hearing of this holy word. Please pray with me. Holy God, make tender our hearts and give voice to your presence in our world of perpetual danger and extraordinary innocence. In such a world, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.
This, frankly, terrifying scripture passage is in such close proximity to our most beloved Christmas stories that we have hardly any excuse to pass it by. But it is much too sad to be included on our sentimental celebratory Christmas Eve. And in the wake of Christmas, there is a rush to move on to the stories of Christ as an adult, his Sermon on the Mount, his loaves and fishes, his walking on water. There are so many stories to tell and such little time, 52 hours, maybe less, really. And maybe the slaughter of the innocents, as this passage is called, is just too this-worldly for us, too this-worldly not mystical enough, not spiritual enough, too real to be spoken of here in this holy place, a sanctuary with its architecture pointing to the heavens and away from the earthly tragedies of this life. How could a savior, a messiah, a miracle worker, an incarnate deity be born into a world so similar to our own, in which children are killed and continue to be killed to protect the power of a tyrant like Herod? On the cusp of this new year, when fresh resolutions resound with renewed vigor, as yet unspoiled by an unceasing human inability to live into our wildest hopes and dreams, we might still today have faith that 2016 will be a different year than the last, with fewer children defeated by tyrants and fewer innocent people victimized by people of power fewer refugees chased from their homelands by the spoils of war. Surely, in 2016, we will be older and wiser and more peaceful and less fearful. But if the photojournalism of the last year has any power to speak the truth about the world in which we live, then I suspect that the God of the gospel, the God of today's story, will continue to meet us where we are, in the midst of a world filled with perpetual danger and extraordinary innocence. A photo from Liberia last January shows a nurse's aide and an Ebola survivor comforting an infant girl with symptoms of the disease in a high-risk treatment center. A photo from Ukraine last February shows a child playing cards in a local theater that was used as a bomb shelter during fighting between Ukrainian, the Ukrainian army and the Russian-backed militants. A photo in Kenya in April shows a dusty grave of Angela Githakwa, one of the 142 students killed at a university in Kenya in an attack by Shabab militants. A photo from Myanmar, Burma, in June shows a 12-year-old girl holding her undernourished infant brother in a squalid camp. Persecution forced her and thousands of Rohingya to flee from their homes in 2015. A photo from Gaza in July shows a 5-year-old, Taka Najir, standing amid the rubble of her destroyed home. Over 250 members of her extended family had to move into trailers after losing their homes in the 2014 Israel-Gaza conflict. A photo from the border between Greece and Macedonia in August shows a child standing in a field of police officers 
who were, who were controlling a rush of refugees who were seeking safety. And finally, the photo that so many might have seen or heard or rec will recognize for years to come, a photo from Turkey in September of Alan Kurdi, the Syrian toddler who's drowning off the coast of Turkey drew public sympathy, sympathy to the refugee crisis. We live in the midst of a world filled with perpetual danger and extraordinary innocence. And we gather around sacred stories like today's story to find hope in hopeless places, to find other mothers with whom to weep, to make way for a balm in Gilead, to name sorrow and to claim life, to gather our strength to start anew. And so such new beginnings demand our whole heart. Mundane resolutions in 2016 will not do. The ritual of arriving here in this holy place to worship God is likely not just formed by these vaulted ceilings that point to the heavens, but by the pews that root our feet to the ground and by the doorways that bring us together and yet send us back out into the world again. Hardy, life-transforming resolutions are the only balm in Gilead, the only hope for 2016. What then of gathering around this story of the Magi? We don't have much time until the doors of this place beckon us back out into the world and there must be some hope from God in the midst of this tale of terror. You remember bits of this story, yes? The Magi follow yonder star seeking a king who has been born. The wise men are sent by King Herod who asks them with what sounds like a bit of a wink and a nod to go and search diligently for this child and when you have found him, bring him to me so that I may also pay him homage. This is a joke, right? A king paying homage to another king? There is only room for one king in Herod's kingdom, and that's him. The Gospel of Matthew sets us up brilliantly to see Herod as this selfish, scheming villain to our innocent infant hero, Jesus. Herod is like Mr. Potter to our hero, George Bailey. Joker to our hero, Batman. Voldemort to our hero, Harry. Sauron to our hero, Frodo. Vader to our hero, Luke, and most importantly, in Matthew's context, Pharaoh to our hero, Moses. Matthew is telling us an old, new story, retelling history in a familiar way, picking out the pieces of this ancient epic and then echoing its core message for the sake of a new promise, the promise of God with us, now in flesh appearing. The local monarch Herod becomes this portentous pharaoh of lore, killing all the firstborn Hebrew children. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus relives the story of Moses' childhood, protected by God so that he can lead his people to an ever greater promise. Now, if you are like me and over the last couple of weeks you went to go see the new Star Wars film, then I hope you can follow along with this next bit. And I promise for those of you who haven't been there yet, I will not spoil anything. 
the writer and producer of the new Star Wars film, J.J. Abrams, would do well in this gospel writing genre. Already, already having written a sequel, sequel for Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible and a reboot to Star Trek's saga, Abrams understands storytelling with a gospel-level attention to detail, recycling those old themes in order to point to a new future. The new Star Wars films offers the classic desert and ice planet battle scenes, loyal chattering droids, excellent banter from Chewie and Han Solo, and multiple surprise family reunions, as well as that familiar look on someone's face as they realize the force is with them, and a crowded bar scene with odd music and nefarious characters quite reminiscent of Jabba the Hutt's cantina. And J.J. Abrams channels the gospel writer's recapitulative narrative style best when he introduces a new character in this year's film who performs a Jedi mind trick on a stormtrooper that is practically as powerful as Obi-Wan Kenobi's quite nonchalant, this is not the droid you are looking for. In the new film, too, as in the original trilogy, countless unmourned innocents are killed, and the complicated heroes emerge with equally complicated villains to battle. And still, in light of all these callbacks to remind viewers of the more ancient stories, in the same way that the Gospel of Matthew hangs together as a story, even if you don't recognize this Jesus-Moses connection in today's narrative, the new Star Wars movie also can be enjoyed by my sci-fi oblivious father-in-law who had seen Nary a George Lucas film. <laughs> Storytellers like these never tell just one story, even when it's a story that does a good job of echoing older stories. Scenes in Star Wars can't help but remind contemporary viewers of old Nazi gatherings and Hitler's reign of terror, in the same way that the audience for the Gospel of Matthew back in 80 AD can't help but hear this story of Joseph and Mary and Jesus escaping to Egypt without thinking of refugees of their own day, fleeing the Jewish war in Palestine as Herod's empire crumbled and the even more villainous leaders emerged from the Roman Empire in the years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And so, while Luke's gospel has Mary singing her melodious Magnificat, no one even whistles a tune in Matthew's infancy narrative. Instead, they weep. And while the Magi are esteemed parts of our narratives, holding places of honor in our crib sets and offering fifth graders and sixth graders the privilege of walking down this aisle, singing solos from We Three Kings, the gifts that the Magi bring are more wise and more prophetic than pure acts of generosity. The gold they bring predicted a king, the frankincense, an incense used in the very dwelling place of God, where Yahweh was uniquely present on earth, foresaw divinity. And the myrrh, a burial perfume, anticipates the suffering and death of this infant the Magi have traveled so far to honor. 
And if you've ever heard a 10-year-old sing a solo of this verse about myrrh from We Three Kings, then you know why there is weeping in Matthew's gospel. We'll sing it together soon enough. Ultimately, Jesus and his family do move back to Palestine after Herod's death, but the story doesn't become one of rainbows and puppy dogs like we might hope. They undertake a radical act of moving back to a politically volatile place where the struggle for justice and liberation is a struggle that always continues. And as Christmas and Easter people, we know both the beginning and the end of this story of Jesus, his suffering, and his struggle for justice. On this third day of 2016, when the world has put on a new pair of rose-colored glasses, it is hard to say that this story exudes even an inkling of hope. Yet, what I have seen in the last two years at Kenilworth Union is that this congregation serves God and neighbor best at this corner of joy and sorrow, where compassionate participation meets an embodied love that bears with the chaos. This church doesn't exist primarily because of chipper, cheery, fake smiles and facades of shallow joy. This church is a divine and dusty place, at once disreputable and shabby and susceptible to every human frailty, and yet a mystery of love beyond all imagining. This church bears with the chaos because in gathering here, in sitting in these pews with our feet on the ground and our vaulted ceilings pointed to the heavens, this community is able to endure together, to face the chaos of life in community, to live the examined life of love that is struggle, bearing with the chaos. And so this passage is celebratory a way to ring in the new year when it moves just one person to help someone of extraordinary innocence who lives in perpetual danger. And this passage is celebratory, a way to ring in the new year when it strengthens just one more person to flee from the ones who are Herod-like villains in a chaotic world. And this passage is a celebratory way to ring in the new year when it builds up this community that so deeply participates in a compassionate love that bears with the chaos. This passage is a celebratory way to ring in the new year when it allows people to gather for renewal and be sent out the doors of this place, strengthened. Here light dawns, courage is renewed, tears are wiped away, a new moment of life arises. Speaking about suffering, ours and God's own foretold by the Magi's myrrh offers an ally of resistance and a wellspring of hope. But it does so not in some magical world of perfection, but in this world of perpetual danger where our very gathering is often the surest sign of God's light made manifest. May it be so. Amen. <laughs>